Half Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Halloween 2 from 2009, written and directed by Rob Zombie. Now, Zombie wasn't originally going to come back for the sequel. Like a lot of filmmakers, he had a very bad experience working with the Weinsteins, who constantly tried to insert their own ideas for what they thought would make the movie more commercially viable. Anyone who watched a lot of horror in the 90s and aughts can tell you that there was kind of a cookie-cutter feel to their aesthetic and plot structure, especially among sequels, and a big part of that came from Dimension Films and the Weinsteins' continual efforts to put in the things they thought audiences wanted. They very much thought of Dimension as making product, not art, and they had a lot of product to pump out. Honestly, the more I learn about canon films, the more it strikes me that the only difference between the Weinsteins and Golan and Globus was that the Weinsteins got away with it for longer. Anyway, with No Zombie, French filmmakers Julien Mori and Alexandre Bustillo were brought on in an attempt to replicate the signature gory, grimy aesthetic of the 2007 version of Halloween. These two were very hot at the time, having just released what's now considered to be a classic of the new French extremity movement, A l'Intérieur, aka Inside, but seeing someone else getting ready to touch his baby, no pun intended for those of you familiar with Inside, made Zombie realize he did in fact have very strong opinions on what would happen next in his vision for the franchise, and he didn't want anyone else messing them up. He went back to Malek Akkad, got assurances that he could do anything he wanted to with the sequel, including kill off Michael for good, and began work on Halloween 2. Once Zombie returned, others followed. Scout Taylor Compton, who I may have inadvertently called Taylor Scout Compton by mistake in the previous episode on this, my apologies, comes back as Laurie Strode, and Tyler Maine returns as Michael Myers. Malcolm McDowell makes a return appearance as Sam Loomis, Brad Dourif gets an expanded part as Sheriff Brackett, and Danielle Harris shows up again as his daughter Annie, who, if you'll recall, survived her first encounter with Michael in this version of the story. Even Sherry Moon Zombie comes back as Deborah Myers in Hallucinations and Flashbacks, although unfortunately Dag Ferch had grown too much in the intervening years to step back into his role as a young Michael, and Chase Wright Vanek took up the role instead. One of only three roles in the young actor's career. I don't want to say his performance explains his lack of success in Hollywood, but he certainly does not bring the same fearless intensity that Ferch did. Really, the only major new characters in this sequel are the late legendary Margot Kidder, who shows up for a small but pivotal role as Laurie's psychiatrist Dr. Collier. We've already talked about her career in the episode on the Amityville Horror, but suffice it to say she's got real horror chops from that movie and 1974's Black Christmas, as well as being a whole generation's ideal Lois Lane. And Brea Grant and Angela Trimber as Laurie's new besties Maya and Harley. Grant has fully embrace the horror genre, appearing not just in this film, but in Midnight Movie, Ice Road Terror, Beyond the Gates, Holidays, Dead Night, and The Stylist, and Lucky, just to name a few, and she also wrote and directed Lucky. But mainstream audiences might be more likely to recognize her from her stint on Heroes. And Trimber has also gone on to a very nice career, appearing in dozens of smaller parts on big TV shows like Community and The Good Place, as well as in movies like The Final Girls. 
And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the film's bizarre, improbable celebrity cameo. Yep, for those of you who had a weird Al Yankovic in your pool for celebrities I was never going to talk about on this podcast, you just lost. Yankovic, who's best known as the only person to be able to truly make a career doing novelty songs and parodies. Seriously, compared to the average lifespan of a novelty act's popularity, he has an absurdly long and storied career. But he has done some acting, most notably in the 1989 cult classic UHF. It is safe to say, though, that this is something of a departure from his usual roles, and the only horror movie in his list of credits. Which leaves us with nowhere to go but into the movie itself, which begins, after the usual Dimension Films logo, with a caption telling us that according to a book, The Subconscious Psychosis of Dreams, not actually a real book, the white horse is a symbol of instinct, purity, and the drive of the physical body to release powerful and emotional forces like rage with ensuing chaos and destruction. Now, it should be said that one of the big complaints from detractors of this film was the odd turn it took into surrealism by constantly having a white horse show up as a symbol of Michael's and later Laurie's lost innocence. But honestly, it's really not in there as much as it feels like it is, and I think a big part of that sense of ubiquity comes from putting big placard right at the beginning saying, please pay special attention to the white horse. Here's what it symbolizes. I won't say this is studio interference, but it does feel a titch like something he put in there because someone told him no-no audiences won't get it until you spell it out. In short, if I were to make any changes to this movie, and there are a few tiny ones I would recommend even to the director's cut, taking out this opening caption would be one of them. We then cut to a flashback to Michael's time at Smith's Grove, to a Christmas where Deborah Myers gives Michael a toy horse as a present, which doesn't seem like the sort of thing they would allow him in a mental institution. It looks big and clunky and possibly wieldable as a weapon. And he says it reminds him of a dream where she rode in on a white horse to bring him home. Again, the physical presence of the toy horse is probably over-egging the pudding just a little bit. I think you could have just had her visiting and allowed Michael to bring up the dream himself without the thuddingly obvious presence of an actual, literal white horse showing up by coincidence to prompt it. We already know from the previous movie that he doesn't understand why he can't go home, and it does make sense that he would see his mother as some sort of a savior figure. I don't think it needs a prop to hammer it home for the audience. Plus, as noted, the heavy-handed emphasis on the white horse at the very beginning is going to make it feel more like a part of the film than it really is. In any event, the flashback is abruptly interrupted by the sound of a gunshot and the sound of Laurie's scream as we cut, discordantly, to the title card. Keep in mind, that's deliberate discordance. It works very well from an emotional standpoint, because we're suddenly jarringly brought back to the horrors of the end of the previous movie. When we come out of the title card, it's to the present day, perhaps only minutes after the end of the previous movie, and a bloodied and bruised Laurie Strode is wandering the streets of Haddonfield in a fugue state, still holding the gun she used to shoot Michael. Sheriff Brackett finds her and gently, carefully removes the pistol from her hand, and listens to her rambling, confused explanation of events before bringing her to a hospital to have her significant injuries treated. And as in the previous film, you can see in the disorienting, brutally realistic surgery sequences that follow that Zombie isn't interested in the usual gory fun of a slasher flick. 
He's showing Laurie and Loomis, who turns out to have survived the assault at the end of the first film, as genuinely traumatized, physically and mentally. They're talking about Laurie needing plastic surgery down the road for her facial scarring. They're showing a lot of the surgery up close, with the needle and the thread going into and out of the skin to suture it together. This is a movie that wants you to live in the consequences of Michael's attack for two long, uncomfortable hours. And I genuinely believe a lot of the backlash against it comes from people who don't necessarily want to think about that stuff when they watch a Halloween movie. Which is fine, you are of course allowed to like what you like and dislike what you dislike, but I've heard this described as a bad Halloween movie instead of just a movie that the particular audience doesn't like, and I think that's a little unfair to it, because it is very good at what it's doing, it's just not necessarily doing something Halloween fans want. Meanwhile, over at the Myers place, a pair of coroners, played by longtime character actors Dayton Kelly and Richard Brake, put Michael in a van and take him over to the county morgue, discussing along the way how attractive Linda remains in death in a scene that's gross and uncomfortable to watch. For the most part, I think Zombie does a pretty good job in this movie of avoiding the asshole victim trope, that is to say making a victim so deliberately unsympathetic in the moments before they die that their death feels more like a moral comeuppance and less like a tragedy. But this is definitely a case where after only a minute or two in their company, you are actively rooting for both of these men to perish. Which they do when they hit a cow in the middle of the road and slam to a stop hard. The driver is instantly killed in the crash, but the passenger survives just long enough to see the supposed corpse in the back wake up, get out, and slash his throat with a piece of glass from the window. Then Michael walks away toward a vision of his mother, all dressed in white, next to a white horse, his mask shredded, but his sense of purpose seemingly very much intact. Now, some have cited this as a flaw in the film because Zombie very much wanted to avoid treading in that liminal space between the real and the supernatural that Carpenter made his bread and butter in the modern fairy tale that was the 1978 version. But honestly, I don't think you need to invoke any special pleading here, at least. Despite what you see in horror and action movies, people can and do survive gunshot wounds to the head all the time. The skull is filled with thick fluid that cushions the brain, and that fluid can cause bullets to tumble and curve unpredictably on their path through the victim. There are recorded cases where someone was shot in one temple and the bullet came out the other, all without even touching the brain. And certainly Laurie was not a trained shot, and not at all fit to know whether the wound she inflicted, which we never actually see, was lethal. Yes, it seems odd that nobody on the scene noticed when taking his vitals, but it was a chaotic situation and he was lying there with a bullet wound to the head. They might have just gotten sloppy. It's a bit of a stretch, but not one that violates the film's aesthetic. In any event, we cut back to Laurie, apparently waking up in the hospital to darkness and silence broken only by a TV set playing Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues, which is again perhaps edging up to the verge of excessively on the nose, but given that we've actually entered a dream sequence, I think it's allowed here. Outside, Dr. Maple and Nurse Daniels, played by horror icons Caroline Williams and Octavia Spencer, respectively, as with the previous installment, you're going to see a lot of great horror actors in small parts here, are bantering about their plans for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday, shortly before Dr. Maple leaves for the night. And neither of them immediately notice Larry levering herself out of bed and stumbling down the hallway to where Annie lies in the ICU in stable but critical condition. But Lori is quickly found, and the nurse begins to help her back to her bed before she's called away to an emergency and leaves Lori on her own. 
Lori begins to feel woozy and faint, probably the result of a concussion sustained in the fight, and calls for help. Nurse Daniel returns, but with a stab wound in her throat sustained by Michael. She collapses almost directly into Lori, and moments later the killer comes in and finishes the job he started with the nurse while Lori flees. Again, it's a very brutal and uncompromising death, with the pain and terror shown in detail and the stabbing continuing long after it stops being quote-unquote fun. We're not in an environment where a zombie is creating emotional distance between us and the events on the screen so we can root for big spectacular set pieces and have silly spooky thrills. We're watching a woman get stabbed to death, and it's legitimately terrifying. After he finishes with Nurse Daniels, Michael goes after Lori in an extended chase sequence that leads down the stairwell and out into the parking garage, where Lori at one point falls into a pit of bodies that should be a tip-off that this is all a dream, before she finally makes it outside into the driving rain. A rain that wasn't at all staged, by the way. The Weinsteins slash the budget and the shooting schedule on the very first day of production, as well as moving the entire operation from California to Georgia to get a tax break, and the weather in the Deep South was decidedly less cooperative, and Zombie did not have the time or the money to wait for better weather. The budget miseries contributed to making this one of Zombie's least favorite filming experiences, and the problems didn't stop after shooting wrapped. But we'll get to that in a bit. Lori continues fleeing, finally finding the night watchman's station out at the far end of the parking lot. But there's no watchman, only a small and empty booth with a TV set again playing Nights in White Satin, and she hides as best she can. Now this whole sequence feels like an homage, or possibly a redemptive effort depending on how you feel about the movie, to the first Halloween 2 back in 1981, but Zombie's been fairly adamant that he's not a fan of that film and did not intentionally take anything away from it because he just didn't think it was salvageable. Your mileage may vary there, of course. The Night Watchman, Buddy, another tip that this is a dream, that's the same name as her teddy bear, finally arrives and he promises to get Lori to safety. But just as he pulls up in his car, Michael attacks and demolishes the booth with a fire axe and prepares to slaughter Lori, only for her to wake up screaming, revealing it was all a dream. And this is where I think the film makes another very small mistake with a very big impact, because she doesn't wake up in her hospital bed, even though everything that happened prior to Michael's arrival at the hospital was real. She wakes up in the bracket house, and a caption tells us that it's two years later, or one year in the theatrical release. The DVD I found on the shelf was the unrated director's cut, which has come to be known as the definitive version. This is a huge deal for audiences, because without any clear indicator of what was real and what was a dream in the preceding 25 minutes, we're left to assume that none of it was real, or at least that we can't trust any of it to have been real, and that we are just now entering the official narrative when in fact, Zombie intended for everything to be narrative except for the chase itself, from the point where Lori seemingly woke up in the hospital to her apparent death. But by not returning us to the last narrative point intended to be consensus reality, we're unable to determine how much weight we should give to any of the preceding story, and it creates a lingering resentment in the audience, because the last thing you want is to spend 25 minutes on something that turns out to be as irrelevant as a dream sequence which is one of the reasons why older genre movies, which frequently used the it-was-all-a-dream ending as a default narrative reset for audiences they believed were too unsophisticated to accept something literally impossible happening on the screen in front of them, tend to go over so badly with modern audiences. But I digress. 
The point is, what I would have recommended if I were there was a sequence where Lori wakes up screaming in the hospital, maybe in the bed next to Annie so she could look over at her friend and see what Michael did to her, then do the two years later as a caption card, and then have Lori wake up screaming again in her own bed, indicating that the nightmares have continued unabated this entire time. But that's just me. I didn't make the movie. If this is what Rob Zombie wanted his artistic vision to be, and he's satisfied with it, he does not need to listen to me. The nightmares definitely have continued unabated, by the way, and Laurie is now on several medications for her mental health. She's living with the brackets now, and Annie and her dad quietly discuss Laurie's frequent night terrors in between bouts of friendly bickering over Annie's attempts to get her dad onto a healthy diet. Annie and Laurie talk more about the nightmares after Lee leaves for work, and Annie tells her to take things one day at a time. And this is one of the big differences between the theatrical cut and the director's cut. Because in the theatrical cut, where the Weinsteins wanted audiences to have an uncomplicated and sympathetic recovering victim they can root for, Laurie smiles and says back, one day at a time. Because the Weinsteins didn't really think that this should be anything other than a crowd-pleaser. They were willing to go some distance with Rob Zombie's vision simply because he was the guy they hired and he was a big name and he had just come off of the previous installment and was very hot and it made them money, but they kept trying to say, no, this needs to be softened, this needs to be made more audience-friendly, this needs to be made more in line with product. And that wasn't really what Zombie had in mind. So in the director's cut, which is a real and unflinching look at PTSD and the ways it can cause lasting and permanent damage, she follows that first smiling line with one fucking day at a time. You know, if I hear that phrase one more fucking time before ranting about her therapist and all the people who expect her to recover on a schedule that's convenient for them, including Annie herself. Which sets off Annie, who is still dealing with her own scars, both mental and physical. The makeup team does some impressively subtle scarring on Daniel Harris's cheeks, leading her to rail at Lori for lashing out at everyone who cares about her, and the argument ends with Lori storming out of the house to head to therapy. And honestly, I greatly prefer Zombie's version of events. I think that it fits better into both the narrative of the story he's telling and the real-life effects of trauma, and I think it's genuinely something we don't see very often in horror. Usually the sole survivor in these slasher films is allowed a triumphalist narrative, where they defeat the monster who's stalking them and put it all behind them right away. And I think it's genuinely important to say, no, you don't just pick yourself up and get back to normal. And yes, sadly, often people's patience for supporting you on your journey back to mental health ends when you become an inconvenience to them, and that's very tragic in and of itself. To the point, honestly, where I could have watched this whole movie without Michael just to watch the recovery stuff. It's so well done. It's so moving and heartfelt. This is the narrative Jamie Lee Curtis kept trying to come back to in her returns to the franchise, but coming back 20 and 40 years later just doesn't have the same impact as picking up the story two years after that fateful night and seeing the immediate, direct effect of Laurie's trauma. I am all for it, and this scene is really vital, and I understand completely why Zombie has entirely disavowed the theatrical cut where it's missing. At therapy, Dr. Collins tells her that she's bound to have additional trauma centering around the upcoming Halloween holiday just two days away. 
Not only is it a tangible reminder of everything she went through, but she has to deal with the fact that Michael's body vanished, and she doesn't have that sense of closure that comes with knowing the man who attacked her and killed her parents is dead or in jail. The prevailing theory, at least as espoused by Loomis, by the way, is that someone recovered his body after the car crash and sold it as some sort of grotesque memorabilia like the Elephant Man skeleton. And again, that is such an interesting direction to take it, I kind of would have liked a movie like that, where Michael just never shows up and you don't know what happened to him. But anyway. Lori is frustrated, admitting to Dr. Collins that every time she sees Annie, it's a reminder of what they went through, and it's becoming a major strain on their friendship. And she comes close to admitting that she wants to lash out with real and physical violence against her friend. Instead, though, she changes the subject to a print on the wall of a Rorschach inkblot, which looks like two white horses rearing up back to back. Because the white horse is a symbol, you see. This bit was also added in the director's cut. I think it probably could have stayed missing. We then cut to Dr. Sam Loomis, attending a press conference for the release of his new book, The Devil Walks Among Us, about the events of Halloween night two years ago. Loomis has gone completely Hollywood now, demanding and petulant to his long-suffering publicist, played by Mary Birdsong, and obsessing over every detail of the publicity campaign. And it's definitely something of a shock for anyone who's thinking back to Donald Pleasance's increasingly Michael-centric version of the character. But McDowell felt like Loomis was already getting sucked into that celebrity mindset even in the first movie, which is terrifyingly easy when you're surrounded by people who cater to your every whim and tell you everything you think, say, and do is brilliant, and a second bestseller on the horizon would probably seal the deal. And if you're talking realism, it's hard to argue based on the evidence of decades in Hollywood that this doesn't happen. After therapy, Lori heads to her job at a local coffee shop, Uncle Meets Java Hole, where she hangs out with the owner, played by Howard Hessman of WKRP Head of the Class and Clue fame, and her two fellow employees, Maya and Harley. The three women are all planning to attend a big barn party on Halloween night called the Phantom Jam, and Harley and Maya are trying to convince Lori to go along with an as-yet-unspecified group costume idea. And it's clear that this is Lori's new wild, free-spirited friend group to replace the deceased Linda and the now-antagonistic Annie. I will say, although I think Trimber and Grant do their best, these are kind of underwritten characters. They never really progress past their sketched-in alternative chick personas, especially because we know from the moment they're introduced that their real role in a movie like this is to pad out the body count. I don't know if this is even fixable given how much is going on in this movie already, but I will say again that I think whatever does work about them works because of Grant and Trimber's performances. Loomis holds his press conference, where he opines that Michael suffered from an Oedipal complex that made him try to murder all the male authority figures in his life and cling to the female figures, and the whole thing goes very badly. Loomis tries to deflect and distract from the heavy topic by mugging and joking quite inappropriately, and gets prickly and defensive both about the accusations that he's exploiting the tragedy for his own personal gain and by the implication that Michael may still be alive. There's a very real sense that he feels that he has earned the right to tell these stories through his own suffering and through his long period of working with Michael, that this is a payment that he is due for the hard work that he's put in, and that anyone accusing him of exploiting the tragedy simply doesn't understand how much effort and time and suffering he has endured. 
Which is, of course, bullshit, but it is the justification he's using, and I like that there is one because everyone is the hero of their own story. But, as Loomis insists that Michael is dead once and for all, we hear his words over a shot of a homeless Michael wearing a scavenged duffel coat and wandering through a cornfield. And here's where we get another very controversial concept, which I like a lot, but which undoubtedly offends purists even more than seeing his backstory in the preceding installment. Because this version of Michael isn't just a shark in baggy-ass overalls, to paraphrase Buster Rhymes' inimitable description of him. He's not simply killing to kill, and he's not just hunting down all the members of his family one by one. He wants to see Lori again to reconnect with her, and that's a concept that's too difficult to convey without some kind of exposition. But of course, famously, Michael never talks. So Zombie takes the unique and unprecedented step of putting us inside Michael's head as his dead mother and his child self discuss the return of the season and the need to finally bring the Myers family back together again for good. And honestly, I think it's a very smart way to get these story points across in a way that feels intuitive without giving Tyler Maine a lot of dialogue that would reduce his looming menace. I'm very fond of the way he stands there, giving us all that smoldering physical anger and tension while the child version of himself does all the talking, even if, again, we don't get that same amazing blend of gentility and blazing hate that Fairchoffer does. Oh, and there is no horse in this scene, even though it takes place in a barn. The horse is pretty much gone until the end of the movie, but because of the early emphasis on it, everyone is like, oh, the horse is there all the damn time. It's really not, I promise. As Michael leaves, he's set upon by the farm's owner and his two adult children, played by Dwayne Whitaker, Betsy Rue, and Mark Boone Jr., who assault him for his repeat trespassing. They beat him with a baseball bat and a tire iron to the point where the daughter yells at them to stop and apologizes to Michael for their behavior. But just as they get back in the truck, Michael stands up and puts on the shredded remains of his Halloween mask. He slaughters all three of them, even the daughter who was sympathetic to his plight, in another sequence of tense and uncomfortable carnage. Then he goes to the dog kenneled in the back of the truck and, well, it is a Halloween movie. By this point, I don't think I'm saying anything surprising when I say the dog does not make it. We then get a very disturbing scene where the family dinner of pizza at the Brackets is intercut with Michael killing and eating raw dog. Lori's half of the pizza is vegetarian, but even so she becomes nauseated as if she can taste what Michael's doing from all the way across town, and she goes running for the bathroom to throw up. This is the first sign of a psychic connection between Lori and Michael, which comes into play a lot more in the third act, and I do think it's a little bit odd to bring it in so late in Zombie's version of the franchise, especially because he's shied away from any kind of supernatural elements so far, but I can't say it's a deal-breaker for me, it just feels out of place. Lori and Annie then make amends a little for the morning's incidents as Annie helps her clean herself up. The movie then gets surreal and almost self-consciously artsy for a moment as we go into Michael's head, and he envisions Lori as the main course in a banquet held by a group of sinister, masked figures. It's a beautifully shot scene, but I'll confess it is so completely at odds with the aesthetic of the rest of the film that it looks like it comes out of a Rob Zombie music video more than anything that belongs here. Interestingly, it's Lori who wakes up from it, suggesting yet again that she's getting some kind of psychic spillover from her brother's mind. 
A new day dawns, and Michael spends most of October 30th walking to Haddonfield. In Zombie's version of the story, he never did learn how to drive. While Loomis holds a staged appearance at the Myers House for local television news that offends even his somewhat morally challenged publicist, she's trying to get him to sell this as a serious, sympathetic look at an American tragedy, which will allow people to feel a little bit less guilty about being true crime voyeurs but he's insistent on treating it like, well, like a big circus, to be blunt, saying, Bad taste is the petrol that fuels the American dream. McDowell does a great job of making Loomis genuinely awful in this movie, it has to be said, even if you are one of the people who doesn't think he should be. Laurie, meanwhile, goes to take a morning shower and winds up having a psychotic episode, in the clinical sense of the term as always, where she envisions herself reenacting Michael's murder of his stepdad, but this time with Annie as the victim. It's legitimately terrifying, played with vicious intensity by Taylor Compton, and she emerges from it traumatized and shaking and practically lunging for her meds. But she's all out, which only frightens her more. She goes to Dr. Collins, but the psychiatrist is deeply uncomfortable with Lori's insistence on getting drugs and thinks she may be taking more than the recommended dosage. She tries to talk out the problem, but Lori lashes out with a verbal tirade about how sick she is of only being an object of sympathy when it's convenient for others. Again, this is a scene that only exists in the director's cut, and it's a shame because it contains some of Taylor Compton's most impressively intense performances. She's really fearless here, not caring whether she comes off as unlikable, and Margot Kidder does a great job of acting as the calm counterweight to her wild and frenetic rage. I'll admit, the first time I watched it, I didn't understand why Collins was refusing her medication, but on second viewing, it's clear that she doesn't think Lori should be out of meds yet, and she's worried about why this woman has used so much of these very potent substances. She's doing her due diligence as a doctor. That night, as Brackett watches Loomis's TV appearance, he becomes suspicious of the way the psychiatrist teases big surprises in his upcoming book. Meanwhile, Annie finds Lori drinking another big red flag, and the two of them fight over this latest sign of Lori's mental disintegration in a scene that ends with Annie storming out. Getting back to Michael, he's finally gotten close enough to town to pass by the Rabbit in Red, the club where his mother used to work, and of course a nod to the matchbox in the original movie, where the original owner, Lou, played again by Daniel Roebuck, still holds court. Michael first kills the bouncer Howard, played by Jeff Daniel Phillips, as he takes the trash out to the dumpster, knocking him to the ground and literally stomping on his face until it's a bloody, pulpy mess. I have to say, by the way, one of the little understated things about this incarnation of the character is the way Zombie uses the hood of the duffel coat and careful lighting to render his face a mystery even when he's not wearing his iconic mask. He's constantly shadowed and backlit, which makes him look more like a shape than he did as the shape. Michael then goes into the club, where the owner is having sex with one of his employees. I'll say this for him, it does appear to be consensual, but there's obviously a lot of problematic power dynamics in play with the age difference and the employer-employee relationships, and basically this is what Joss Whedon got away with for years, so you And proceeds to murder first the owner, then his lover. Again, it's important to recognize that Zombie makes sure, even with these incidental characters who are not particularly likable, to give you moments where you see their reaction to what's happening and where they see each other. 
Spielberg and Fincher use this technique a lot, although in Spielberg's case it's usually more to convey wonder than fear. You feel something much more intensely when you see the people on screen feeling it too, and the reactions from the characters in the movie as they see this horrific violence makes it much more difficult to watch. But that's the point. This isn't supposed to be a fun horror movie. This is supposed to be a serious horror movie. And I think there's a place for both, even in the same franchise. The next day, October 31st, Brackett immediately goes out and buys a copy of Loomis's book, and his worst fears are realized. Loomis has gone ahead and spilled the beans about Lori's true parentage and her identity as Michael's baby sister, Angel Myers. He calls Annie, hoping to catch Lori before she leaves the house to break the news to her in a more sympathetic way from someone she knows and trusts, but it's too late. Lori's already gone, and she spots the book at a local shop and buys herself a copy. We next see her in a car, slamming her fist into the steering wheel and screaming, Fuck! over and over again as she discovers the truth. Michael, meanwhile, spots a billboard for the book on his way into town, and while he remains impassive, Deborah and young Michael are demonstrably upset over the exploitation of their pain and suffering. We see Loomis at a book signing, hitting on his female fans and interacting uncomfortably with a fan of Michael's named Chet, who is a little too enthusiastic about the serial killer, he's played by Silas Weir Mitchell, before Loomis is then confronted by Linda's gun-wielding father, played by Robert Curtis Brown, who accuses him of not even recognizing the dead woman, which, to be fair, Loomis does not, and holding a share of responsibility for her murder. Even though it's clearly a displaced anger reaction, taking out his frustrations at the unavailable and unobtainable Michael on Loomis, and even though the gun isn't actually loaded, it obviously unsettles Loomis as he goes on to do a talk show appearance, and he's defensive with his publicist about the lines the book crosses. Which, if we're being strictly honest, are so big that I honestly can't imagine any publisher releasing it as it's depicted here. There could be serious legal repercussions for violating the privacy of a private citizen by announcing to the whole world that Laurie Strode, who is not a public figure, is actually Angel Myers. Repercussions that would hit the publisher as well as the author of the book. I'd have to imagine that the legal department would nix any actual photos of Laurie Strode and insist that she be named under a pseudonym for her own protection, and even that might not be sufficient given that there's enough situational information to identify her as a survivor without naming her name. I'd say that it was maybe a small press that published it, one that was more willing to risk that kind of thing, but a small press wouldn't be able to afford the kind of publicity we see here. A more likely explanation, if you have to come up with one, is that this was a Rupert Murdoch-style operation so big and powerful that they rationalize any lawsuits as the cost of doing business and are all ready to cut Laurie a check the second she lawyers up. But it's still something of a snarl in the plot, I will freely admit. Laurie goes home, determined not to stay with the Brackets after finding out that they knew her true identity and didn't tell her. Tragically, Annie literally has no idea what's going on, to the point where she can't even understand why Lori is so mad at her, and she can't stop her friend from storming out with her things after telling her to tell her dad that Angel Myers says, fuck you. Annie dutifully passes along the news, and Brackett goes looking for the wayward teen while sending over some police protection to his house for Annie, just in case. 
Lori goes over to Maya's, and this is probably Berea Grant's biggest moment in the movie. She's really being the mom friend to Lori, offering her a place to stay and suggesting they cancel all their Halloween plans to help her out with her traumatic revelations. Which, uh, not to get into my own personal issues, but this scene resonated a little more than usual with me after some recent conversations with my parents about things in our history. There's nothing quite like finding out that there are two memoirs about your mom's side of the family tree. Anyway, Harley comes in, modeling her Frankenfurter Halloween costume, which she describes not once but twice as, quote, a chick dressing up as a dude who wants to be a chick, unquote. I'm aware the original movie traffics in that kind of transgression, and 2009 was a pretty homophobic and transphobic era in its own right, but I could have done without this. But Harley quickly shifts gears when she realizes that Lori isn't kidding, she's really Angel Myers. She also offers to cancel the party, but Lori says she needs something to take her out of her own head for a while, and insists on going, complete with costume. She dresses up as Magenta, and Maya dresses up as Columbia to match Harley's Frank. And they are all really cute in costume, by the way. I just, it has to be said, they are. And they head out to the Phantom Jam. And meanwhile, Sam Loomis makes an appearance on a talk show hosted by a man named David Newman, played by Chris Hardwick, speaking of dudes who got a taste of fame and became gross and entitled, where he sits next to Weird Al Yankovic and gets grilled about his new book and its potentially exploitative and damaging revelations. Loomis is defensive and angry, pointing out that he's a victim himself and he earned his right to author the book through years of suffering and actual blood, while Al tries to diffuse the tension with some jokes that are legitimately hilarious, but not really appropriate for the situation. At the jam, Lori gets a little too into the drinking part of drinking and dancing, and Harley ditches them both to go off with a man in a werewolf costume, played by Matt Bush. Now I have to say, barn parties have never been a particular strength of the Halloween franchise, and it's still true here. Despite some charming music written by Jesse Dayton, appearing here as fake band Captain Clegg and the Night Creatures, who actually got their own CD as a tie-in to the film, this really isn't a particularly necessary sequence, and it kinda slows the momentum. Also, it's got some frankly misogynist humor comparing women to jack-o'-lanterns that I could very much have given a miss. Plus, it doesn't make a lot of sense, because Michael walks to the Phantom Jam, even though he has no way of knowing Lori's even there, kills Harley and Wolfie, doesn't stick around to find out where Lori is, and instead goes back to the Bracket House and kills both the deputy and Annie before Lori gets back, even though Lori and Maya are driving. Unless the Brackets live right on the outskirts of town near this farm, it's kind of a mess, logically speaking. Oh yes, that reminds me, Michael shows up at the Phantom Jam and kills Harley and Wolfie. Anyway, Loomis watches himself on television that night, getting dunked on by Weird Al Yankovic, and realizes that he has officially hit rock bottom as a human being. He has a moment of clarity, understanding at last that his status as Michael's psychiatrist doesn't give him the right to exploit the very real tragedy that's hurt so many, including himself. Back at the Phantom Jam, Laurie experiences another psychotic episode, this time seeing Deborah and a young Michael, which, again, can only be explained by at least dipping our toes into the supernatural. Because while you can say there's such a thing as a history of mental illness in family lines, it doesn't extend to having identical hallucinations of people that Lori at least hasn't seen since she was a baby, before Maya escorts her out of the barn to go home and cool off. 
They both assume that Harley is with a guy, which is sort of technically true, but not in the sense that they think. Michael apparently sprints the fuck to the bracket place at top speed and stealthily kills the deputy guarding the house. He then goes in and finishes the job he started two years ago, savagely murdering Annie in a sequence shown only in tiny, almost subliminal flashes of violence and horrible sounds playing over Lori's return. Maya tells her she made the right choice coming back to talk things out instead of just running away from her problems, little knowing that this is pretty much the exact opposite of the truth, and a drunken Lori replies by standing on the porch and shouting, Hey world! I'm Michael Myers' sister! I am so fucked! Which is an iconic shot, and probably one of the best lines in the movie. She brings Maya in to make tea, neither one of them realizing that Michael is still lurking in the house. It's only when they go upstairs and find the first of many, many bloodstains that Lori discovers the danger they're in, and she opens the bathroom door to find her friend barely alive and covered in blood and wounds. Maya goes to call 911, but Michael gets to her before she can do more than say the address, and he brutally murders her as well. And honestly, I think he could have streamlined the movie greatly and made a lot more sense out of things by making this where Harley died too. There's no reason for Michael to be at the Phantom Jam and no reason to spend a lot of time on it. Annie dies in Laurie's arms in an absolutely heartbreaking scene that's really not something you get in any other slasher I've ever seen. Usually they either find bodies or they find survivors. There's not really a scene where you watch the life spill out of one character while the other begs and pleads and sobs and breaks down in torturous emotional agony, made all the worse because of their strained relationship and the inevitable survivor's guilt. It's almost a relief when Michael breaks into the bathroom and Lori is forced to flee into the night with her brother in hot pursuit. And his hallucinations as well, who are by this point in the movie observing practically every move he makes. Not so much the white horse, though. It has not made an appearance since Michael climbed out of the morgue van at the beginning. Sheriff Brackett is informed that his own house is the subject of the 911 call. He races to the scene, pushing aside the cops who tell him he shouldn't have to see this, and Brad Dourif puts all the emotion in the world into his sobs and cries of grief that are interspersed with actual home movies of Daniel Harris. It's the crowning achievement of this duology, a summation of the damage and trauma and true horror that even a single killing can inflict. And again, it's expanded significantly from the theatrical version where it was cut down and tidied up and covered with music and the flashbacks were eliminated. I gotta say, I really sympathize with Rob Zombie having to deal with the fucking Weinsteins. They were abusive and horrible to everyone they worked with except for a few celebrity darlings, even if Zombie didn't have to deal with the sexual aspect of their abuse, which is obviously that much worse. But back to Lori. She finally makes it out to one of the bigger country roads and manages to flag down a car by pretty much kneeling right on the double yellow lines. The motorist stops for her, but Michael catches up to them, kills him, and literally flips the car over before collecting the semi-conscious Lori from the wreckage. I'll admit, even as someone who is very impressed by this movie as a whole, this is something of a bridge too far for me. That's over a ton he's deadlifting. It's just not realistically something a regular human being can do with their bare hands. 
It's also not necessary, either. He could have just dragged her out through the window. Michael holes up in a hunting shack with Lori, but he's been spotted, and the cops are quickly summoned to the scene. Lori wakes up directly into another psychotic episode, with Deborah demanding that she recognize her family connection while young Michael physically restrains her. Again, this veers into supernatural territory, not because she's having a psychotic episode. She's just had a head trauma on top of all the other shit that's happened to her today. I can fully believe she's hallucinating. But because she's specifically seeing the same things Michael is. It's something that Zombie has not asked us to go along with in the previous movie, and it's a little bit of a stretch here, but again, at some point with all of the Halloween movies, I think you just have to accept that there's a little bit of supernatural to them. Loomis sees on the news that Michael and Lori are trapped and surrounded by dozens of cops, even though none of them has a clean shot at the moment, and decides to make things right with a big, grand, dramatic gesture, because even though this isn't about him anymore, it is still all about him. He drives out to the shack, and in one of the most believable scenes in the whole movie, Brackett punches him in the face and comes perilously close to shooting him in the head before the other police drag the sheriff off. He orders Loomis to leave, but the psychiatrist instead runs past the cordon and into the shack to have one last conversation with his former patient. And this is where things radically diverge between the two cuts. Because the Weinsteins wanted a version that left things open for a sequel, and if I'm being blunt, because they never really understood what Zombie was trying to do with this story. The theatrical version ends with Michael stabbing Loomis repeatedly before a police sniper gets a clear shot. Michael is blown backwards, landing on the tines of a rake, and Laurie gets his knife and stabs him with it before taking his mask away and putting it on. Embracing the family legacy, she goes outside and is forcibly subdued, and the last shot is of her in a mental institution, grinning as she too sees her mother approaching with a white horse. We'll get a little more into this in the next installment of the Halloween franchise, but this was intended to lead into a Halloween 3, in which Michael would turn out to have survived. But for now, let's just go to the director's cut. Because in the director's cut, which is the only one zombie views as valid, Loomis comes in to see Laurie thrashing in the grip of her hallucinations. Michael tackles Loomis straight through the wall and out into the open and stabs him to death, saving his only adult utterance for the word DIE, screamed directly into the older man's face as he pulls off his mask to confront his failed father figure face to face. Michael is then shot dozens of times by the surrounding cops, collapsing to the ground dead at last, and Laurie staggers out and picks up his knife herself. Before anything else can happen, though, she's shot by a panicked officer, and as she dies, she sees her mother riding in on a white horse to save her from her tragic, miserable, and all-too-short life. All to the sounds of a mournful, soulful cover of Love Hurts that parallels Michael's murders on that first fateful night. I don't like this ending more because Laurie dies, although, yes, if you're going to lean full-on into the tragedy of this version of the Meyer story, it feels appropriate to go all the way and end with everyone dying. Which also was done according to Rob Zombie, because he didn't want them doing another sequel, so he killed off Laurie, Loomis, and Michael. I like it because it doesn't turn Laurie into the villain of the next movie, or suggest that the end result of PTSD and family mental illness is that you inevitably become a murderer yourself. 
Laurie is a human being in this version, traumatized and brutalized and messed up, but not necessarily about to pick up the family legacy and become a monster herself. And she eventually dies not because of her brother, but because the police are actually not very good at handling crisis situations despite their frequent claims of superior competence and judgment. Boy, does that feel more accurate in 2023 than it did when this movie came out. It's a sad ending to a sad story, and it leaves you thinking and feeling. And I like that despite having a few problems with the story here and there. This duology has been my first experience with Rob Zombie as a filmmaker, and you know what? I'm impressed. And will I hang on to this movie? Well, I think that previous summation makes it clear, yes. The director's cut of Halloween 2, at least, is really affecting and emotional and moving, even with a few quibbles here and there, and I think it deserves reappraisal from the folks who couldn't see past the horse and the car flip and the extended nightmare sequence at the beginning. And I hope that my description helps at least a few people see it through different eyes, because there's a lot to appreciate here, if not exactly to enjoy. And if you want to talk about White Horses, Frankenfurter, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watchlist on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash HalfPriceHorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, ladies and gentlemen, we have alien vampires, we have spaceships hidden in the tail of Halley's Comet, we have shapeshifters, and possession, and hypnosis, and Matilda May wandering around naked as a plague of undeath grips London, and that's all in one movie. Yes, that's right, we are doing the timeless classic of bizarre, over-the-top science fiction horror, Toby Hooper's Life Force. And if you haven't heard of this movie before now, I guarantee you, you are not ready for this. And I can't wait to tell you all about it. See you then.